Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So um, what we're going to do now is jump into our sermon series that we started last week called Being the Church. And, and Paul has written a letter to Titus basically describing how to build the church and be the church and organize the church as it grows. And what's going to happen today is Paul is going to address some of the forces of opposition to the church and what to do with them. So we're going to do two things. We're going to pull from three different letters that Paul wrote, and I'm going to tell a story of minor humiliation of my own. And since that seems like the more fun part, let's start with my minor humiliation. Some years ago, I went ocean kayaking with my father. It looks something like this because, you know, Texas. Um, when you Google ocean kayaking, nothing comes up that looks like this. And as soon as you add the word Texas, everybody is kayaking in cowboy hats, which I've never seen before. But apparently that's what people do. So we're just going to leave that there so you get a picture of what's happening because this person is ocean kayaking in Texas. Uh, kayaking for us, my father and I, we like had fishing poles. We were going to make it out past the breakers and then get some really good fishing done. And so you imagine us in our belt buckles and cowboy hats with our horses in tow, and we were trying to get out past the waves, past the breakers, so that we could do some really wonderful fishing. And uh, kayaking was really the misnomer. It should have been called uh, swimming next to a narrow plastic boat. That's what our adventure was. Eventually, uh, it became flailing helplessly as nature dunked on us. And then as the sort of like whole process kept going, what it turned out to be, what it ended up being, was two one-lunged individuals heaving on the beach. That's all it was. And we just were like, this didn't work very well. It was brutal. Uh, the coastal wind was brutal. Was, was brutal. Um, there's a current that you don't even figure, you know, you look at the ocean and you don't realize that there's a current. And you know, you know there's a current, but... You don't realize when you get on a floating object of any sort, it's pulling you one way or the other, and you can't see which way it's going to pull you. So there's these winds, there's these currents, and it's just ripping us wherever it wants to go. And we never considered half of it. We were like, you just got to make it past the waves. Just, you know, do the thing where you do the hard work like a man. And then it didn't, it didn't work at all. The waves were a symptom of the wind and the current. And the wind whipped up the waves, and the current started dragging us wherever it wanted to go. And in short, we had no chance. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld tells this joke years ago about how the ocean is like a nightclub and the waves are like bouncers. And the, the moral of the story is the ocean doesn't want you in it, and it's just throwing people out left and right. And so surfing is just trying to make it into the ocean, and the ocean's saying, get out of here. And I don't know why I thought of that, but that's what it felt like. It felt like we were being thrown out of the ocean. Um, we failed to identify the forces that were coming against us. As we took on this journey, we failed to identify all that was going to come against us on that journey. And so we left exhausted and further from the goal than we wanted, and it was sort of just a massive failure. And it was an ego blow, but more than that, it was like, man, we really didn't kind of have the full picture here, and as a result, we super failed at this thing we set out to do. So then let's hear from Paul and see how that makes sense for us today. Uh, we're going to be reading in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, he says, for there are many in the, in the church, there are many among you, who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And one of the Cretans, the people they're uh, living with writing in the island of Crete, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are like liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So what we're going to do with that is make an observation and a distinction. The observation first is Paul is warning against the religious among them, the overly religious among them. This is what, I mean, how many of you thought you were coming to church today and we are going to talk about having a circumcision party? Like those two words shouldn't ever go together. That's what Paul says. Paul says those of the circumcision party, those who are um, needlessly harboring and promoting this religious idea that has nothing to do with the new covenant in Jesus that has been created, those who are so hung up on the old rituals and traditions of religion, that's who Paul is, is talking about as he gets started. Those who conflated Jesus with Jewish tradition with the law, those who hadn't fully embraced the new covenant of life in him, or who sort of did embrace Jesus but wanted to keep the old traditions and rituals because it gave them a sense of comfort, that's who he's talking about directly. So that's our first observation. And this is important for us because we live in a place like this. I would call these the religious headwinds. These are the religious winds that sweep over us. I sometimes get email complaints. I don't know if you know that. I've, I've mentioned that from time to time. I sometimes get email complaints. Um, sometimes I get in-person complaints. I don't know which one I prefer more, to be honest. And, and they're often ridiculous. Some of them are legitimate. Some are theological. Some are like preferential. And um, I got one of these most recently after Good Friday, where somebody said, I cannot take you seriously, and I will not listen to what you have to say, because you preach in blue jeans. That's about the 12th time I've heard that in my life. That somebody has emailed me, come up to me. Somebody came up to me at Easter years ago. After Easter service, that a friend brought them, their relative brought them, whatever, and we just preached the resurrection of Jesus, and, and the guy came up, a good old Texas boy, and he shook my hand, and he goes, preacher, I don't got an ounce of respect for you when wearing in blue jeans. And I'm like, you're wearing blue jeans. <laughs> That's how that went. Some people don't like my jokes. I'm good with that. Some people don't like the Bible translation we use. I'm good with that. But to imagine that somebody missed the gospel message of Jesus because they didn't approve of the type of fabric that was against my legs while I talked about it is religious insanity, right? It's religious insanity. I didn't, want to, I didn't tell him this. I should have told him this, but he might have just exploded on the spot. So I'm going to tell you guys something. I've never told anybody this. Jesus didn't wear any pants when he preached. <laughs> Somebody's in here going, I don't know if that's true. Think about it for a minute. Don't tempt me. I'll try it. Religion. Paul's warning against this bizarre religious, what are we doing? Recently, the Catholic Diocese of uh, Phoenix in Arizona, Phoenix, they announced that a priest, when doing baptisms for years, has used uh, the wrong language. He actually spoke one word wrong. Instead of saying, I baptize you, he said, we baptize you. And the diocese in Phoenix had to send out thousands of letters, put out a press release, 
that because that one word was inappropriately used, all of those baptisms were invalidated. The letter goes on to tell those who are affected that because baptism in the Catholic Church is sort of a a gateway sacrament, so to speak, all the other sacraments require baptism first, that their confirmation as Catholics and their marriages in the Catholic Church had also been invalidated. This is what we call wild religious insanity. These are the headwinds that we face, and, and we like to point at other congregations and other people and other, we face them too in and of ourselves. The headwinds to the faithful following Jesus, the worthless religious hoops, and we have to ask ourselves sometimes, like, are you really free in Jesus or are you not? Like, like, like at Crete, where Titus is trying to build the church, are, are we really trying to get new adult believers circumcised? Is that really the thing we're after here? Is that the thing that's going to drive us to greater devotion? The question I think um, Paul is sort of challenging Titus to ask, and maybe the question for us is, is this behavior, ritual, whatever, is this about spreading love and grace of Jesus rooted in truth, or is it about perpetuating a religious tradition? Because if it's perpetuating a religious tradition, it doesn't make it wrong. Some of those things are great, and they give us comfort and guidance and stability, and we know what to expect when we show up somewhere. Those are not bad things, but those are not the main things. Those are not essential things. And when we, when we elevate them above the, the essential things of faith, that's where we get our wires crossed. So that's an observation. I think the headwinds we face are these religious undertones, these religious ideas. The distinction, though, is that there's also a cultural current working against us. So not only are there winds, but there's a current. And this is what creates those waves of resistance we feel as we try to walk the Christ life. Paul is warning against the religious, and, and yet there's this, but wait, there's more kind of implied in that. He mentions the defiled and the unbelieving. And so we have to make a distinction between those who are naive or uninformed or ignorant and those who are outright deceptive or chasing personal gain. So I say there's religious headwinds and there's a cultural current that is against you in this moment. So, so like in kayaking, I failed to identify all these forces, and it was a recipe for exhaustion and failure. Paul is saying that if you fail to identify these forces in your local body, in your spiritual walk, you will wake up one day and feel exhausted and like a failure because they are here and you have to acknowledge them. And he says, if we read chapter one of Titus, it's first the job of the elders of the church. The elders are to point out the false teaching and the religious hoops and get rid of all the nonsense and then talk about where the culture's off and get rid of that current so that we can focus on the main thing. That's the elder's job first, but it's all of our jobs eventually. Everybody individually can do that in their own lives. It's a good point to, to, to point out that this is not just an externality. We often like to do this where we go, it's those people, the religious people, those people, and those cultural people, those people, and it's us too. All of us in us, within us, have uh, flesh. We have the thing that's tempting us with the song of the world. And all of us in us have some legalistic thing trying to find the rules, identify loopholes, beat the system to earn or justify, or we all have that. We all have that in us. So yes, watch out for the false teacher, the voice of the believer leading others astray. Yes, watch out for the prosperity gospel or the personal agenda when it's coming from the preacher. Yes. And yes, watch out for culture and the traps that are set there for the voices that are building their own kingdom that aren't aligned with the kingdom of heaven. And and no matter what news channel you watch, no matter what political aisle you walk down, we all have to be careful. 
to know the difference between somebody who is uh, advancing an agenda that might have some kingdom uh, benefit or advancing a kingdom agenda. Because we get ourselves so enmeshed with all these different, it's not just politics, it's everything. It's celebrities and it's culture and it's, it's all the things we give influence of our lives. We allow them to influence us. All of these things, we are not asking those questions. We ask questions like, is this good for me or bad for me? Is this explicit or not? Is this, um, this needs to be censored or not? What's the rating on that show for my kid? Oh, it's TVPG? Whatever. And I'm asking the question, what's the agenda of the show? Because the agenda, if it's not a kingdom agenda, guess what? It's an alternate agenda. It's a current pulling them away. This isn't about canceling all of your Netflix and Disney. It's not about, I mean, do it if you want to. But the question we don't ask very well, the question we're not very good at asking these days is what's the agenda behind this? So Tucker Carlson or Anderson Cooper, I don't care. What's the agenda? Is either of their agendas the kingdom of heaven and the exaltation of Jesus as king of kings? Well, get your information, but be careful who you give your heart to. Joe Rogan, Joe Biden, doesn't matter. What is their agenda is the question. Your favorite celebrities, athletes, influencers, YouTubers, TikTokers, whatever. LeBron James, as far as I know, his agenda isn't Jesus. He's building a brand. He's building wealth. He has a platform. He has an agenda. And I got nothing against LeBron James, but I'm not giving him my heart. So we have to learn to recognize who is after the kingdom of heaven, after the Jesus life, and who's after the kingdom of self, whether that's dollars or votes or likes or whatever. Is this about spreading the love and grace of Jesus or something less? Paul is saying, church, you have to know that. You have to know that there are alternate agendas everywhere. And then you have to be able able to identify what those are. You have to be able to not only know that there are currents and headwinds at all turns, but you have to be able to identify them and be shrewd enough to look at the world around you and realize that not everything that's, that's like not bad is good. And parents, young parents, pay attention. We spend a lot of time, a lot of time on the wrong things spend a lot of time warring against the wrong things, all the while polluting our children with all these things that just are not, kind of not bad. We have to be able to identify the voices that need to be silenced so that we might hear the still, small voice of the Lord. And then if you are an overseer, whether it's an elder in a church or parent in a home, or if you're a leader, you have to be able to learn and identify those voices that are opposed to the kingdom of heaven so that those who you lead and oversee can hear the still, small voice of the Lord. This is internal, this is external, it's religious, and it's cultural. There is evil lurking. Whether we want to admit it or not, that's not a word we like to say a lot, evil. Evil is like Vladimir Putin, evil. Everybody else, eh, they meant well. And the scripture's really clear, there's evil. Dr. Henry Cloud wrote a book called Necessary Endings. I'll put it up so you can see it. He identifies using his own clinical work and biblical framework three types of people. He would say three types of people, or if you wanted to kind of soften that, you could say three behavior styles, but he says there are three types of people, and they're the wise, the foolish, and the evil. This is a biblical construct that there are three types of people in the world. There are wise, foolish, and evil. So we're going to leave this up, and you can just, I'm going to read you his definition of these three. How do you know which is which? He says, the wise, when truth presents itself, the wise person sees the light, takes it in, and makes adjustments. 
So think of it, who's that person in your life? When the truth presents itself and they're, they're going this direction, the truth presents itself, they go, oh, well, if that's true, then I need to course correct. I need to like listen to that. That's wise. He says, give these people time and attention and resources. The fool, Cloud says, tries to adjust the truth so he does not have to adjust to it. These are sneaky ones. The fool tries to adjust the truth so they don't have to adjust to it. And Cloud would say, stop giving them time and resources. Instead, give them limits and consequences because they're not wise enough to follow the instruction. The evil, the evil person desires destruction and intentionally aims to hurt you. The remedy for them, he says, is lawyers, guns, and money. And he says, I wish I was joking. You want to get an evil person off your track in a global, you know, Putin, what does Putin understand? Condemnation, sanctions. He's understanding only weapons. That's the only thing that will slow him down. What does uh, a child understand? A child understands, the foolish child understands consequences, limits. When you get to evil people, it's lawyers, weapons, and money. It's the only thing that will slow them down. When you get into the, to, to the evil, when you get into a place where someone is actively trying to destroy you, you have to realize that there's something else that needs to happen. We don't like to consider that people are evil. We don't like to even consider the evil in ourselves. And, and I'm not saying that you're not redeemed. I'm saying there's a part in us, there's a part in us that that flesh is poking through at times. There's a part in us that's driving the wrong direction if we allow it to. Paul writes to the church at Galatia. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Paul says your flesh, if you're not living in the spirit and you're living in the flesh, it, it's evil. Like it's running against the, the, the agenda of the spirit. And so you can't listen to the thing in you, that natural voice in you, you might primal instincts. That's not the thing you were created for. You've been redeemed and made new so that you might live by the Spirit instead of by the flesh. They are in conflict, he says. Henry Cloud said the basic point of his book is that we spend too much time giving life and attention, pouring life and attention into foolish people and evil people, and we fail to recognize the return on that investment is pretty minimal. So he says you have to have some necessary endings. You have to learn where to cut the cord. You have to learn how to cut people off. You have to learn how to make an ending. Identify those around you and then discern who they are. It's basically what Paul is sort of telling Titus. Identify those around you and learn who needs to be in the club, who needs to be out. Learn who needs to have a voice and who needs to be silenced. Paul says the word, silence them. He's saying, start with the voices and influence that you need and then rebuke those you don't. Rebuke any who aren't helping you move towards Jesus, is what Paul says. How many of us are listening to foolish and evil voices and giving our time and attention to them? How many of us are listening and promoting foolish and evil voices? And then giving them attention is the other piece. We, we cannot control what other people say, but we can control our response. Early in the pandemic, I don't know if you remember that, we went through a little thing. Someone sent me, a, a pastor friend sent me a screenshot of an area, another area pastor, two pastors deep now, it's getting through, horse walks into a bar, okay? The bartender says, why the long face? 
a pastor sent me a screenshot from another pastor who was on social media crushing me and a couple others. And it was about masks, and it was about this, and it was about we're fear and not faith, and it was all these things. It was fine. But he wasn't building the kingdom. His attempt was, if I can make all these other people look bad, maybe I'll look better. Maybe I'll kind of look like I'm pretty faithful. He was trying to build the kingdom of self in the moment. He wasn't building the kingdom of heaven. And the, the deal was, we weren't friends. Like, I don't actually think I've ever met him. And so, when I got sent the screenshot, I said, whatever. And I, I continue to get some of these messages from people because the guy's still kind of railing against the world. And I just go, whatever. I'm not giving him any attention. I'm not personally offended. I'm choosing in my world to cut off his oxygen and just go, he doesn't have influence in my life. I'm just not listening. It's fine. We have people that I'm accountable to. We have a team of elders that, that's making decisions, that's chasing the spirit, that wants to do things right, and we're going to make mistakes. But I'm not letting an outside voice who isn't for the kingdom of heaven, who isn't for our collective good towards chasing Jesus, I'm not letting that have oxygen in my life. So I just don't care. It's just like the guy who comes up and says, I don't like that you're wearing jeans. I'm like, I don't care. I really don't care. But that's, that's actually, I mean, I don't know, pat myself on the back. That's called a discipline. We have to discipline ourselves to not care what the foolish and the evil voices in the world are saying. We have to discipline ourselves to cut those out so that we might hear the still small voice. Identify the voices that undermine the kingdom and then be careful. I said a few weeks ago that boundaries are a bad excuse for unforgiveness. Henry Cloud also wrote boundaries if you're trying to make a connection. The one caution I would give you is too many of us are silencing all of the voices that disagree with us, calling them foolish or evil, calling it boundaries or saying, I need to live my truth. Too many people are silencing the iron sharpens iron voice that says, you may not have it all figured out yet. And so scripture says, remember that the wounds of a friend, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So the first discernment is, is this person aligned with the Spirit? And if they're going to tell me something that disagrees, that wounds me, it isn't for me to cut them off. It's for me to listen. They're, they're giving me wisdom, and now you actually flip the script, and the wise person hears instruction. They hear a little bit of a nudge, and they readjust to fit it. And too many of us have cut out too many voices because they just don't make us feel good. And so don't take this that way and be like, well, I said I can't. I don't have to listen to anybody who doesn't agree with me. No. If someone is aligned with the Spirit, if someone is chasing Jesus and someone gives you wisdom, your job is to take it and adjust. It's not about your feelings. It's about the kingdom. Don't confuse the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of you. If somebody's tearing down the kingdom of you, you should thank them even though it hurts. So finally, Paul uses the word rebuke. I said he uses the word rebuke twice in Titus 1. Rebuke simply means to convict or show the fault. In a courtroom, you would, um, you'd want to convict the defendant. If you're the prosecutor, you want to rebuke them. I convict you of this thing, so I want to prove it. Practically, there's two levels of that for us. How are we to rebuke a culture? How are we to rebuke those voices that we don't need to be giving oxygen to? Well, one is if some believer is teaching nonsense in your world, then go to them lovingly and show them the fault in it. Okay. Hey, I think what you're saying is not totally true. Have a conversation. The challenge for us in 2022 is so much of, of what we run into, so many of the headwinds and the, the currents that we deal with are indirect. You can't yell at YouTube when YouTube's leading you astray. You can't, you know, it gets weird. Should I leave a Facebook comment and start a fight between Christians on Facebook? That doesn't seem right. 
So what do you do? You have to be extra shrewd, and I think this is where conviction comes in, that, that idea and rebuking of conviction comes in. You have to know your convictions first. Do you know your convictions? First, know your own convictions, and then hold your convictions. Put your own convictions on trial, and then in the indirect world of the global internet and everything else, you have to learn how to hit the mute button on anything that isn't in line with those, those true, deep convictions. So let's come back to the ocean for a minute. Let's come back to my ocean kayaking adventure. Texas has, uh, a couple other states have these. North Carolina maybe has these. Uh, Texas has barrier islands, which are essentially, um, you know, sandbars that got a little bigger, and there's islands now, you know, a stone's throw off the beach. So you can drive over a, a big, long bridge, and you end up on an island that runs the exact line of the shore. And what they basically do is they serve as uh, wave breaks. And so whereas the w it's full-on ocean out on one side of the barrier islands, when you get on the inside of the barrier islands between the landmass and the island, they call it a bay in Texas. But it's essentially, uh, it's been, the waves have been broken, the water's, water's a lot smoother, it's like a bathtub, really, compared to being out in the open ocean. And so we ended up kayaking in the bay that day. As we found ourselves failing on the open ocean, my dad said, I got an idea, let's just go over to the bay side on the other side of the island, and then it'll be protected us from the, the worst of the waves. So we did that. The difference between what we're doing as followers of Jesus and what Paul is calling Titus to do is not to get out of the ocean altogether. We're not supposed to get out of the water. So if we quit and we take our boat and we go home, that's not what we've been called to do. We have to engage the world. We have to stay on mission. We have to do the thing we're called to do. We have a purpose here. So you have to stay engaged. So, so God isn't calling us out of the water. He's calling us into the the water that's behind his protective barrier. You cannot bail on this life or this mission because it gets hard, because the headwinds and the currents are against you. You have to find what it is that protects you from them and then lean into that. So Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says this, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. He will strengthen you and protect you. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Paul says, guys, this isn't supposed to be easy, but God will protect you. If you remain in his love and you walk in his purpose and you breathe in his spirit, if you embody Christ's perseverance, God will protect you. And you can stay in the water, you can stay on mission, you can stay on purpose, you can stay engaged in the world, and you can do it behind the protection, the protection of the one who overcame the grave. Jesus gave his life on the cross and invited us into new life in his resurrection. And I really do think that when we live that resurrection life, we are living in between the land and the open ocean. We're living in that, that barrier island sort of safety where we're fully in, we're fully in the ocean. It's still salt water, it's still sharks, it's still all the things. But I'm living with the protection of God on my side. I'm living with the, the assurance of Jesus on my side. And it's a whole different thing. So that's your challenge today. Is what does it look like to identify those rebel voices out there? What does it look like to identify those, those strains of current and headwinds that are coming against your purpose and your mission? What does it look like to then silence them where needed? And then to live not on your own strength, not on your own wisdom, but to live in the protective custody, as it were, of the one who died and rose to give you new life.
Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.